welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. This is Rich Helpy, your host of The Common Bridge. Today, we welcome to The Common Bridge a very special guest, Rod Wood is the president and chief executive officer of the Detroit Lions football team, a member of the National Football League. He runs all of the football and business operations for the team. He reports directly to the principal owner and chairman, Sheila Ford Hamp. Uh, He was appointed team president in November of 2015. Shortly thereafter, he assisted the Ford family with the search and the ultimate hiring of Bob Quinn as the franchise's new general manager in 2016. Uh, Rod's got a great approach to business. Everything's on the table, uh, looking at every piece of the operation, fan experience, uh, facilities, and imaging of the Detroit Lions. And at this time, the professional sports have an important role as we are dealing with the coronavirus and the resulting restrictions on movement. And also, of course, center with the social justice issues of the day. We're going to be talking about that. A couple other things in Rod's background, over a $100 million investment, he led into a complete overhaul of the fan experience, including Uh, new video boards at Ford Field. And I can tell you, having been there, it is a great fan experience. Rebranding the team, but emphasizing the classic Honolulu blue and silver. Off the field, he provides support for a $600,000 commitment from Mrs. Ford and the Detroit Lions players toward the launch of the Detroit Lions Inspire Change. This is the team's social justice initiative in the city of Detroit. This initiative will continue into 2020 through grants to nine Metro Detroit organizations. At the league level, Rod serves on the NFL's investment committee, and he's very well suited for this because for eight years prior to his appointment as team president, Rod worked closely with the Detroit Lions and the Ford family in his role as president and chief executive of Ford Estates. Rod came well-prepared to the Ford family and to Detroit. He was Executive Vice President for Wealth Management for the Wilmington Trust Company in Wilmington, Delaware. And prior to that, he was with Comerica Bank, where he oversaw offices in four different states, over 12 offices. He has a lengthy resume for philanthropic work. And indeed, his entire biography is on the website, richardhelpy.com. Rod's a local guy, graduated from Goodrich, Michigan High School, went on to get his bachelor's from the University of Michigan, and a graduate degree from the ABA Graduate School of Commercial Banking. Rod, all of this responsibility you've got with this background, where are you spending your time today? Well, uh, this year is incredibly unusual given the uh, pandemic, Um, so I'm spending all of my time at our Allen Park training facility. Um, in a normal year, I kind of split my time half between Allen Park, where the team is, and uh, Ford Field, where their business operations are. But all of our business folks are continuing to work from home. And so uh, this year, I'm here with the team, the coaches, and the players. Well, today we are going to talk about the coronavirus and how football can 
be played. We're going to, of course, touch a little bit about professional sports in this hyper-political world and a quest for a social justice. Talk a little bit about the reporting industry and perhaps any changes in professional sports. Hopefully, we get a chance to talk about a Super Bowl. And I anticipate some education, some insight, and possibly some policy ideas. So, Rod, football in the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, what are the NFL's plans for this 2021 season? Well, right now we're uh, we're full go to start the season on time, the regular season. We've, we've made a lot of decisions along the way. Uh, the offseason was very different. Uh, no uh, trainers uh, in the building with players in the spring. The draft, as you probably all remember, was done virtually. Uh, no um, mini camps or OTAs, which is uh, organized team activities in the spring. No rookie mini camp. Um, and uh, so we started training camp a few days ago under very different circumstances with all the normal protections in the building, social distancing, face mask. Everybody's wearing a, a tracker to uh, track their uh, connections to any other players, coaches, et cetera. If anybody were to get the virus, we can do contact tracing the next day. Um, everybody gets tested, including myself, before they come in the building. I get my temperature taken four times. Um, I'm wearing a, a ring to track all of my bodily uh, activity that gets uploaded to our doctors and uh, staff here. But all that being said, uh, we're in the building. We're playing football out on the field. Um, so far, everybody's remained healthy. We've, I think we're now into day 19 without a positive test anywhere in the organization. Um, so hopefully that continues um, and we can open the season on September 13th at home against the Chicago Bears. Well, that preparation is fantastic. I think that makes the Detroit Lions better prepared than most countries and probably leveraging the best of the best of technology. You know, it seems like the NBA and the National Hockey League have done really well with their bubble approach. Major League Baseball, we've had some successes, some setbacks. As you study those, have you there been any helpful do's or don'ts lessons from the other major sports? And, and I didn't mean to leave out soccer. Well, we're sure certainly watching, watching all the sports, uh, the, the ones you mentioned, even uh, what's going on with uh, Indy racing and NASCAR racing and uh, PGA Tour. Um, all of them have similar, but in some ways different protocols. You mentioned the bubble approach with uh, hockey and basketball. Uh, I think that suited their situation because uh, they were really trying to wrap up a season that had been suspended. And, and they could go to a place with a much smaller number of uh, players and coaches and have everybody together than you could ever accomplish uh, with the football team. We did have the benefit of not having a season interrupted. All this happened uh, during our off season. So we were able to kind of be preparing for this season from the very beginning to be very different than any other season. The other sports, unfortunately, had their seasons either interrupted or, in the case of baseball, delayed. Um, I think the things that we've, we've learned are testing is very important, but testing isn't the only thing. You still have to follow good social distancing, wear a mask, you wash your hands, uh, be careful when you're not in the building, when you're out in the community or home with your family or at the team hotel. Um, and the one difference, I think, with baseball that uh, is unique um, in that they do travel to other cities, and when they are there, they're there for three or four days at a time. Uh, when we're going to go on a road trip, we fly into a city at, you know, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock on a Saturday, uh, have a team meeting, have meals, everybody goes to bed, we get up, have a breakfast, and at 9 a.m. we're going to the stadium. So we can kind of replicate a bubble even when we travel. 
And I've described what we've done is, at least right now in training camp, we've created 32 bubbles, one per team. So we're in the Detroit Lions bubble and the Chicago Bears are in their bubble and on and on and on. Once we get to the season when we are traveling and playing against other teams in other cities, we have very strict travel protocols. And hopefully we continue to have very good testing results and we can maintain everybody's health and play football and not have this spread and, and disrupt the season the way it has happened in, uh, in baseball for a few teams. Well, I'm very comforted to hear about all that preparation uh, because I just can't help but think about those, you know, big linemen and they're, you know, on the eighth play of a drive, you know, they're breathing heavily, they're close quarters over and over again. Every hit, you've got body fluids and sweat, sometimes blood. It sounds risky, but it, it sounds like you've taken all the precautions possible did the players union have to get involved in crafting these rules? Everything that we're doing was negotiated between the league and the players association. And uh, I think we've come to a very good place where the players feel incredibly safe, which is very important. And we will continue to uh, keep them safe and hopefully, you know, not have a spread like we've seen in other sports and in communities that don't have some of these protocols. Um, and I know talking to our players and coaches, they actually feel safer in our building than they probably do at home because they know how often it's clean. All the plexiglass that we put in the facility that separates every locker from one another and how we've handled the weight room, and how we handle the meal room. Um, I no longer go to our dining facility as an example. I have an app on my phone and I order breakfast, lunch and dinner each day at home. And then it's delivered to my office and I eat by myself in my office. So I'm not interacting with the players in the meal room. Even in the meal room, they have tables that are separated separated by plexiglass so that they're sitting next to each other, but they're not you know, able to have any you know, transmission of coughing or sneezing um, to, to one another. And then when you get on the field, football is a contact sport. You're not going to be able to have social distancing while we're playing. But hopefully if everybody arrives without the virus, everybody leaves the game without the virus because you know we've made them safe when they got there, and hopefully that continues through the season. Are the players – given the option if they want to opt out this season? There, there was an opportunity for players to opt out uh, the first couple of weeks of training camp. Uh, there were two ways you could opt out. One, you could just decide not to play. And if you did that, you were given a, a stipend for this year, which was really an advance on next year's contract. And your contract, if it had two years remaining, those two years are really now 2021 and 2022. And you could do that with no questions asked. And then you could also opt out under a different protocol if you had um, any high-risk uh, health issues yourself. And there was a list of those included diabetes, heart condition, et cetera. And if you opted out under that high-risk uh, situation, you had a higher stipend and it wasn't in advance on next year's salary. It was just a, a payment for you to set out this year to protect you and your family. There is going to be an opportunity uh, for someone to opt out during the season if someone in their family should contract the virus or they have some other unique uh, situations. But uh, so far, those that have opted out across the league, I think it was somewhere around 65 players. Um, we had several um, that opted out here. And those that are in camp now, we're, we're 80 guys in camp. Um, we expect those guys to, to play and uh, be part of the team. How about the NCAA, as uh, we've talked on this podcast, that some of the Power Five conferences have elected not to play. Some are going forward with their seasons. As you describe the protocols that you put in place at the professional level, 
I'm just thinking that's just too difficult in a college setting, particularly when the player athletes are going to be attending class and interacting with other people. Yeah, it's, it's very different. Uh, you know, first of all, college football is, you know, 180, I think, institutions, uh, multiple conferences, uh, big schools, small schools. Um, and I think, you know, you don't have one governing body while you have the NCAA. They do not make decisions for every conference or every school. Um, and they don't have a union to negotiate these kind of protocols with. Uh, the players are not um, employees. They're, they're student athletes. So it, it, it is very different. I think they have the complications of are they going to decide to have students on campus? And if they're not going to have students on campus, how do you justify having football players there to play football? Um, I think that they all struggled with it. Um, we'll see what happens with those conferences that are still trying to play, and hopefully they can play because college football is important for a lot of reasons. Uh, I think it'll be exciting for some people to be able to watch college football, especially in parts of the country that they're going to play. And it's important for the NFL because those are our future players. And we want to be able to see as many good players play safely this year as we can because they're likely to be the future of, uh, of different NFL teams. Well, I think that sums it up. Uh, let's want them to play and play safely. Yeah. Think, you know, Rob, thinking about the fans, you know, that in-game experience is so special. And I know during your tenure as president, you've done some very serious investments in Ford Field. There's bands that are producing live music. There's team mascots. There's uh, cheer teams, uh, on-field reporting. Uh, I know some of that won't be continued. And I'm just wondering, you know, what can the fans expect? There's no preseason tune-up. It seems that home field advantage, being able to create crowd noise when the other team's on offense. When you think about it, from a fan's experience point of view, what are some of the big takeaways our listeners might want to understand? Well, I think you've hit on a lot of things. It's going to be very different. It's not going to be that different than what you're experiencing watching some of the other sports right now. Um, we remain hopeful that we'll be able to have fans uh, at some level in the stadium um, at some point during the season. That's going to be a decision that's largely guided by the health experts and, and in our case, the state of Michigan and what the, our governor and her advisors think is appropriate. And so far, we're, we're still working with them to come up with what those standards might be. Um, but in terms of what will go on on the field, it's going to be football. And we're not going to introduce any other risk to the players or coaches by having uh, cheer teams or announcers or halftime shows. Um, that's something that is going to be missed this year, um, not only in Detroit, but across the whole NFL. Um, but the most important thing we want to do is play football because that is the, the sport. And that is what drives fan interest. And uh, I think the games will be presented on TV in a way that is not that different than what you've experienced in the past. There's a lot of interesting things that we're thinking about in terms of, you know, crowd noise, et cetera, to make the TV experience feel very similar. Uh, the end game experience for fans who attend in person, it will be different. Uh, the crowd size is going to be limited if we can have fans at all. And the experience during halftime, et cetera, will be different. Getting in and out of the building will be different, but it'll be safe. And that's the most important thing is to make sure everybody feels safe when they come to a game, when that's allowed. They'll be required to wear masks. They're going to have to fill out health questionnaires. There's going to be social distancing. There's going to be arrival times and departure times. And concession stands will be different, um, but it's all geared to make 
towards making people safe and also ultimately comfortable to come to the games when that's allowed. Well, I know I like to attend a game every year and I look forward to that full experience or however modified it might be. You know, sports are big business. And I know the economics with different sports uh, varies and the team economics may vary. When you do your financial analysis, and I know you're a very strong financial guy, is there an average economic impact for each game presentation? And I'm thinking about, you know, the revenue picture for the teams and the ancillary economic benefits that happen in the communities. And are some franchise, you know, more challenged than others? Or has the NFL's revenue sharing made things fairly equal? Yeah, that's a multifaceted question. I'll, I'll talk about the league and, and the team's uh, to begin with, but uh, one of the things I think that makes the NFL so powerful and so successful is owners a long time ago realized whether they were in a big market, a small market, a successful franchise today, or a team that's struggling, the, the whole league is better when all 32 teams are as healthy as possible. So almost all of our revenue, whether it's TV revenue or sponsor revenue or gate revenue, is shared relatively equally um, amongst the 32 teams. There are you know, different percentages based upon different types of revenue. And then each of those revenue uh, sources also are what funds the salary cap. So the players are receiving a significant percentage of that revenue as, as part of the salary cap. And so the big market teams uh, that are generating higher revenue are on balance, making less than they would if they weren't sharing revenue with some of the smaller market teams and the smaller market teams on balance are making more than if they didn't have that revenue shared with them. But I think what that allows is for every team to have a chance to be financially um, situated so they can compete and, and put a winning team on, on the field. So it, it's you don't always see the biggest market teams playing in the Super Bowl. You don't always see the most successful franchises financially winning the Super Bowl. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs are, by most market standards, a relatively small market within the NFL. They're the reigning Super Bowl champs. So I think it's a very successful model. Obviously, this year, revenue is going to be affected by the pandemic. Uh, we're going to have less fans at games. We're going to have less sponsor revenue. Um, some of the sponsors might struggle financially to, to meet their obligations to us, and we prepared for that. Um, thankfully, we have the national TV revenue, which is a major driver of our overall revenue. Um, I would expect TV ratings uh, will be very strong this year, given you know the pent-up demand to watch live sports. Um, so hopefully that will, will will help offset some of the revenue we lose from the from the local side. I want to come back to the part about you know the other parts of the, the cities and states that rely upon NFL games, and I think you'd extend it to, to college football too. It, it's going to be there's going to be ripple effects certainly. You know, if we do not have fans or do not have full stadiums, that'll affect restaurants and bars and parking and hotels. And you take that to the college towns, you know, they are really driven by a lot of that activity. Um, but it's it's kind of the the situation that we find ourselves in with with the pandemic. And right now, the health and safety of everybody is is driving these decisions, not whether it's the right business decision or not, or are going to help a local business. And hopefully, everybody can continue to. Um, you know, get through this year and we'll have a much better 2021 and 2022 once this is behind us. And, uh, but it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough on a lot of businesses. Rod, I really 
am comforted to hear you talk about the health and safety, the higher purpose above the business of football and the game of football. And of course, we play sports in the context of a culture and an economy. And of course, we have social responsibility and social justice issues that are have leapt to the fore. Uh, professional sports are not immune. Um, I know that the Lions are doing something around a program called Inspire Change, and I do want to ask you about that. And I don't think anybody would disagree with the idea that the, the phrase Black Lives Matter is an absolute truth. And in fact, on this podcast, we've talked about the roots of racism in the United States and the journey ahead in scrubbing racism from our society. There doesn't seem to be any dispute about that. But it does seem that there's pushback in mean, some of the organizations and the political linkages of specific groups. And, you know, while no group is perfect, uh, I can see that a reasonable person can see a group as taking on the next battle in the war on racism. And another person can see the extrapolation, the exploitation, you know, by political parties and others. And how does the NFL address this nuanced difference without looking either as uncaring about racism or perhaps as a pawn in a political movement that their players, their owners, and fans may not all support? That has to absorb a lot of your time over the last several months. Well, this, you know, it's, it's tough enough with the pandemic. Um, and then you have, you know, the issues that uh, unfortunately happened this summer with uh, George Floyd and, and, and the other issues around the country um, that really raised this issue back to everybody's, you know, top of mind discussion points. Um, you layer on top of that a, a presidential election with all these issues, again, being discussed from every side. And I, I would say, you know, the NFL has an opportunity because of our platform to do things that can benefit the society as a whole and also bring these issues, I think, to everybody's attention in a way that uh, they can be discussed and hopefully improved upon over time. Um, I will tell you when, when those issues happened this summer, um, it, was, it was a really difficult time for our players, um, many of whom can very much relate to those stories and, and those incidents. Um, and it became a big topic of discussion and, and basically trumped football being talked about for a long time. Uh, one of our players uh, is a close relative of Armand Aubrey, and so it hit home very close. Um, one of our players grew up um, in not very far from Minnesota, so he knew, you know, back home what was going on, you know, with the George Floyd situation. So it was, it was a real uh, heart-wrenching discussion, um, and I think uh, it was an opportunity to educate a lot of um, our white players and our white coaches about what it's really like to have grown up as a, as a young black man in America. And some of the experiences that they heard were eye-opening, uh, heart-wrenching, you know, disappointing. And I think it really brought our team together in a way that uh, was incredible. And I think there'll be a lot of positive things that have come out of it. And I'll come back and we can talk about Inspire Change, which is one example of that in a second. But um, there's a lot of things that we're going to do uh, this year, and I think people are going to be more engaged and more involved. And uh, we've sponsored a lot of things to help people get educated about uh, the issues and, and, and to register to vote. And if you want to make change, you, you can start at the ballot box by 
understanding what the issues are and, and how to make real change by exercising your right to vote. Um, we're working very closely with our Secretary of State and other organizations to educate our players about all that and uh, try and make um, Ford Field perhaps even available as part of uh, election night. Um, and so there's a lot of things that we can do because of our platform. And when we do something and when our players do something, it draws attention. And I think that can benefit not only uh, you know, the organization, but our players and society as a whole. I encourage you and, and applaud you and support you to keep pushing. Do you mind telling us just a little bit about the Detroit Lions program, Inspire Change? Uh, I've looked into it. It looks really well organized, very close to my heart about the things that you're concentrating on. Uh, and I was just impressed with the programmatic approach to very tough and delicate issues. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it. I'm, I'm very proud of it. Um, Inspire Change um, is an NFL-sponsored program, but really run by each team in its own market, uh, really coming out of the issues even three or four years ago when the issues of racial inequality and social justice were first being discussed, um, particularly with, through the sports world. Um, and what Inspire Change is, is each team is encouraged to work with its players and um, fund a certain amount of money um, and whatever the players come up with up to a certain level, the team will match. And uh, then a joint group of players and people from the organization pick um, local organizations in our case that we think can really help change uh, social justice and racial inequality. And so this is our third year of doing it. Um, we were the first team, as I'm aware of, in the NFL that said, regardless of how much money our players put in, we're going to put in the maximum amount. And I'm proud to say that each of the last three years, our players have put in the full amount and we've matched it. And I think we're um, at the top of the list of all teams in the NFL in terms of the local economic impact that we've been able to, to use to support organizations that largely focus on you know, education, um, children. And uh, we've had different organizations over the last couple of years. Um, some supporting our military, uh, military families that have lost uh, family members uh, in the different overseas wars that we've been involved in. Um, and I can tell you that our players are um, engaged and it's not just their money, it's their presence. They show up at these events, they show up to talk to these organizations. Uh, we bring some of them into CS practice and participate at games. Um, and again, because of our platform, when we do something, um, it draws attention you know, beyond what those organizations could ever generate on their own. Right. I just want to encourage you to stay with this and uh, the important role that uh, you people that have been strivers to make the most of their talents and reach the pinnacle of a sport that the NFL has got to meet that consumer desire and the social needs of the country at the same time. And that's real substance. And you know, along with the substance, there is symbolism, like we've seen, you know, with the NBA with their jerseys and the uh, logos on the playing surfaces. And, you know, I like to watch sports for, you know, escapism and relaxing and, you know, bonding with family and friends. And at the game, I like it when everybody, you know, stands up for the national anthem. And while we're an imperfect country, I've always said we're striving for an ideal, any comment about how we make sure that that substance and symbolism blend leading us to a better future perhaps yeah i won't i won't comment too much on what we're going to do um you know along the lines of what you've seen with the nba but there are plans you know for the nfl to to 
bring some more attention to this issue once we have a national audience uh, tuning into our games. Um, obviously, the national anthem was a big issue, you know, several years ago for the NFL. Um, I think a lot of things that were brought up uh, three or four years ago have now evolved in how people view that. Um, I'm not sure what will happen when we get to the games this fall and what happens with the national anthem. But I think if whatever happens, it will be viewed in a different light than it was four years ago. And I think that there's a very positive, um, productive conversation going on nationally. And I can see all sides of it. I understand all different opinions. And I get lots of letters written to me by people on all sides of the issue. And try and listen. And, and this is as much about educating me and everybody else as it is about you know, sharing my opinion. My opinion doesn't much matter. I'm trying to learn from what other people's opinions are. And, and try and do whatever we can to honor everybody's point of view, respect their point of view, but at the same time, you know, do what we think is, is the right thing for, for our players and the organization and for our city. Well, I can hear that in, in the research I did in preparation for this podcast. I know that the Detroit Lions and the National Football League have invested heavily in time and money and, uh, frankly, a very sincere effort at being leaders. Rod, just shift gears just a little bit. On the Common Bridge, we talk uh, a lot about the reporting industry uh, outside of sports and how this has evolved over the years and the, the role it plays and should play. You know, gosh, I remember it, was, it didn't seem that long ago, but perhaps it was that the professional teams used to get free coverage by the print journalists uh, and on the TV news and I'm just, for those of you in Detroit, I'm just going to leave Al Ackerman out of this for a little bit. Um, God rest his soul. Today, you've got so much direct consumer and fan engagement. What's the role of the sporting press today, and how good of a job are they doing? Well, it's, it's certainly evolved. Um, you know, print media, to the extent it, it still exists, um, is it, very different. I think, uh, you know, in the old days, whatever the old days were, you know, you'd have Reporters go to a game, they you know write an article, and you'd go get your newspaper in the morning and you'd read it. Well, now I think reporters are writing articles as the event is going on or broadcasting it live via Twitter or Instagram and writing an article immediately and it's available on the website or, or their app. They still may show up in the morning newspaper for those people that are still you know reading the, the print copy, but I think they've even newspapers have evolved to be much more of an online, real-time almost social media uh, source of information. I would say in our case, you know, we have a number of what we still call beat reporters that show up at every one of our games and every one of our practices. And uh, I view them as, as a way to communicate with our fans. Um, so we engage with them. We still have, you know, press conferences with coach and players and occasionally with our general manager and with me. And it's, it's a way of informing and educating our fans on what's going on. Um, the most, for the most part, the reporters that follow our team and are here every day, they do it because they love football. It's, it's because it's in their blood and they've chosen to exercise that fandom through being a reporter and covering the sport that they love. So I think they take their job very seriously and uh, they do a good job at it. Uh, I don't always agree with everything they say, but uh, that's, that's fine. Um, and then I think the thing that's uh, you know really unique is how many almost full-time uh, national bloggers, insiders, uh, reporters that follow the NFL, um, and, and many of them I know pretty well, 
And they're all looking for, you know, the new piece of information that nobody else has and to be the first one to market to report this, that, or the other thing. And, and uh, so you have to be on your toes all the time looking for, you know, sometimes we're looking for what they may say about one of our opponents, because that may help you. And you're hoping that somebody in your building's not leaking something to them that you don't want outside the building. But there's a lot of people sniffing around all the time for, for that one piece of information that will put them first on the, the Twitter feed or get the most hits on their, on their uh, social media accounts. So um, it's, it's very much changed. Um, and I would say it's instant. Uh, I'm not sure what the life of the story is now, but it's not very long. And, uh, you know, the back and back to, you know, broadcasts, I think the, you know, the TV revenue from local, you know, coverage, go back to your Al Ackerman example, is very different. I mean, they have to adapt too. You used to stay up at 11 o'clock to watch the scores of the games. Well, you could follow that on your phone. You don't need to wait around till 11 o'clock. So they've had to adapt their shows, I think, to be much more you know, human interest stories as opposed to reporting on what happened the night before. Um, and, and we'll see how that continues to evolve as we go forward. But it, there's so many people reporting on our sport, which I think speaks to how popular the sport is. And you just have to be on your toes uh, and looking out for those that are trying to get information from you that you don't want them to have and, and use it to, to get information out that you would rather not have out there. Well, the biggest event, of course, that's reported on is the Super Bowl. And, you know, we have a few holidays in the United States of America. And, you know, probably the least secular has been Thanksgiving, you know, although that's come under attack at times lately. Um, but, you know, the Super Bowl has become something of a national holiday. Even people that are not football fans, they want to know the date because there's going to be some great parties. And there's been, you know, top name entertainment and some great games as well. Big crowds. Uh, it's great for the host city. Do you think we're going to get that extravaganza with the live entertainment and all the accompaniments or something else? Uh, well, th this year's Super Bowl is uh, in Tampa, and uh, I'm, I'm right now very confident that it will be played on, on current schedule. Um, beyond uh, the game being played, predicting how many fans, again, will be able to be there and what kind of entertainment activities may be going on around the game at halftime, a lot of that's going to depend on, on where we are in February and where we are in particular in February in Florida. Uh, with the virus and and the safety concerns that everybody needs to have top of mind. Um, but I agree with you, it is, um, it's become a very, very big national holiday. Um, usually the um, number one rated TV show by a magnitude of four or five over the next highest rated TV show. So um, it's, it's maybe the one thing that the whole country pretty much sits down and enjoys, whether you like football or not, it's, it's a, it's an event. And, uh, I'd love to be playing in Tampa in the Super Bowl in February, whether there's fans in the stands or not. I'd like the Lions to be there. 10 million Michiganders uh, and <laughs> millions of Lions fans all across the country. Um, it was 1957, December, uh, that the Lions last won an NFL championship, played at Tiger Stadium on turf, 59 to 14 over the Cleveland Browns. So let's shift a little bit, uh, quick lightning round. These are quick responses you can either pass or say, yeah, here's a quick answer. These are from Lions fans. How are the Lions maintaining progress in the face of Patricia and Quinn's make or break year, future planning or win now? Well, we're always 
uh, balancing the two, and I'm not going to comment on things that we said at the end of last year about our expectations for this year and how people have interpreted that for for Bob and Matt. But I think the the point is that you know we expect now that we've had you know three years of, of building this that there's going to be a payoff this year, and we expect to be competitive and, and be playing as we said you know meaningful games in uh, in December. The uh, virus obviously has, you know, affected a lot of things as we prepare for the season, but I, I do think that we have a really good football team, and I think we've added some talented players. Um, I think it's hard to remember um, when you look at the one loss record from last year, uh, 3-12-1, and one, that I think uh, there were eight other games that we had leads in the fourth quarter. Um, so it isn't that far to imagine us turning that around and having a, a very strong winning record and uh, being right there where we want to be at the end of the year. But while we're preparing for this year, you're always balancing for the future. And it's not all in on this year. It's, it's, uh, this is part of a long-term plan and we expect the payoff to begin this year. And, and to that end, what's the depth chart look like behind Matt Stafford? Well, we, you know, we learned last year how valuable Matthew is uh, by not having him for eight games. And so we did invest in bringing in Chase Daniel, a, a seasoned NFL backup quarterback. Um, you hope that you never have to play your backup quarterback when you have a caliber of starter that we have in Matthew, but you also have to plan for it. So uh, we do have more depth. We still have David Blau uh, back, who was an undrafted rookie. He did start five games last year, played pretty well and, and learned a lot. So he has real game experience in the NFL and hopefully uh, between the two of them, we have, you know, backups behind Matthew, but I'm looking forward to seeing number nine on the season uh, on the field uh, for 16 games and uh, turning those fourth quarter scores around and, and putting a good uh, record out there. Well, I know that Brian and I and lots of fans here in Michigan would love to see that. Rob, this has been really informative. Uh, what didn't we cover today that perhaps we should have discussed? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. The, you know, the whole world is, is in some ways very different, um, but it does feel somewhat normal to be back in the building. Uh, I've said this several times that uh, this all was breaking in March. Um, we were in the building wrapping up free agency. Uh, we'd already sent our coaches and scouts home and uh, all of our business staff home what, for what we thought was going to be two or three weeks. And it became months and months and months, and some of them are still working from home. But uh, we've been back in the building since uh, the middle of July, and uh, it's you know different because we're wearing masks and all the other things I described earlier on. But it does feel like you're back to work, and I'm out on the field every day watching our football team practice. And so I have uh, optimism that uh, you know we're getting through this, and there's going to be NFL football this fall, and. Uh, it will start to feel as normal as it can be in the current environment. And hopefully this is maybe the, the beginning of turning the corner with the virus and getting back towards normal. Well, that sure would be wonderful. Any further closing thoughts before we wrap up? No, Rich, it's been nice to be on with you. And as you uh, said earlier, we have crossed paths many times and uh, happy to participate in this. And hopefully it was uh, educational and helpful and uh, looking forward to uh, the fall and uh, NFL football. Rod, thank you so much for appearing on The Common Bridge. I know our listeners are going to very much appreciate all of the insight. There's so many great people in our country today working and uh, being innovative as we deal with the crises of the day. Um, it's those kinds of activities and actions and leadership that gives me confidence in our future if 
we can focus our major political parties on policy versus attacking each other, and if we can demand that the reporting organizations do a better job in giving us facts and trying to let us reach our own perspectives. So again, from the Common Bridge, we've been meeting today with Detroit Lions President and Chief Executive Rod Wood. This is Rich Helpy signing off on the Common Bridge. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.